What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Brand here on the Carbide Podcast. As we covered a number of times on this show, through much of the 70s and into the early 80s, we were flush with snowmobile manufacturers. Over 200 brands could be seen across North American dealerships at one point in time. By the early 90s, we were whittled down to the four major ones we know today. In the late 90s, a company out of California made a splash in the snowmobile industry, introducing a sled that was like nothing we'd ever seen before. Futuristic design, groundbreaking engineering, it was an eye-catcher anywhere it was showcased. Unfortunately, due to supply chain constraints and funding issues, only 50 were ever built and it's still one of the most collectible and sought-after sleds in history. It's got one hell of a story, so let's go behind the brand of Redline. And welcome back, everybody, to the Carbide Podcast. Appreciate you guys tuning in once again. Really special guest on the line tonight. He's a longtime power sports enthusiast. These days, he's CEO of Stellar Solar, serving the greater San Diego area. However, pertinent to this podcast, he was president and CEO of Redline Performance Products. He's Kent Harley. How are we doing, Kent? I'm great, Spencer. Thanks for having me on. For sure, for sure. Really, uh, really looking forward to diving into some of the history of the Revolt. It's one of my favorite sleds of all time, so I think it's going to be fun. Absolutely. So for you growing up, who kind of first introduced you to the to the power sports world as a whole? Where did this all start for you? So I'm the fourth of four kids. Um, my dad, we had snowmobiles from as long as I remember. I think our first snowmobiles were Massey, Ferguson, or Ski Whiz. A mm-hmm. 292 single and and then like the first snowmobile that was i kind of claimed as mine was a 73 yamaha sm 292 but my dad we rode snowmobiles every winter um motorcycles i got my first little harley davidson x90 shortster when i was in second grade um but yeah so my dad my dad built scooters he had like he built his own tractor he built he had like tecumseh powered scooters and Cushman stuff and things like that, that he was always messing with go-karts and stuff. So that's kind of how I got into it. And then my older brother, Kurt, you know, I was pretty much a fixture on the back of his bike. He would, I was lucky enough to have a five-year-old or five-year older brother that took me everywhere on motorcycles. So it's all I ever remember, really. That's awesome. That's awesome. So where did you grow up then? Where was the childhood? I grew up in Northern Iowa, just across oh, okay. the border, kind of down by Mason City, a little town called Kanawha. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. What was the, what was the snowmobiling scene like there growing up? Did you guys get a lot of snow or was it mixed? You know, we got a lot of snow back then. I mean, there was, <laughs> we got a lot of snow days at school. We got, uh, I mean, we rode a lot. I mean, I remember drifts over the roads that were, you know, 10, 12 feet tall and, you know, we couldn't get out. Sometimes, you know, the roads were closed for days, um, mm-hmm. and wide open fields and things like that. So I grew up a ditch banger and hitting the, you know, the, the rivers and the creeks and all that kind of stuff. It's flat. But um, what's cool is, I mean, between, I, I live from a town of 800 people. I think we had four or five snowmobile dealers in the little town. And the big town next to me of 2,000 people had like another <laughs> six. You know, Columbia, the hardware store stole Columbia. Some guy sold uh, Evan Roods out at the boat. Um, you know, then obviously John Deere, Massey Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um you know, Polaris was in the big town and those are the days, you know, I was going to say, these are like those peak Everywhere. years where everybody's got a sled. Everybody's making everybody. It yeah. Yep. 
That's awesome. That's awesome. So growing up, obviously you enjoyed riding, um, but did you kind of take an interest in the mechanical side at all early on, or was it really just kind of a fun hobby for you? You know, me and my neighbor, Gary and Joe Hiscott, or actually Joe is, is that we would snowmobile all morning, come in, get hot chocolate, eat. We'd trace snowmobiles, you know, from the brochures. And so I've always had an interest in, but honestly, I really thought I would go the dealer route. I was always kind of, I ended up in California because of a work issue. Um, but I always thought I'd come back to Iowa and be a dealer, a motorcycle mm-hmm. snowmobile dealer. That's what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Just never worked out that way. So, Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I was going to ask if you kind of ever considered at least as a child pursuing, pursuing a career in power sports, but yeah, it sounds like the dealership route was what you kind yeah, of Yeah, No, to the do. dealership route was more what I wanted. You know, I liked the people I worked at a five line motorcycle dealership in Ames, Iowa during, at Iowa state. And, you know, I liked the service manager. I was service manager there and it was fun. I loved it. You know, I got up every Saturday in college, you know, first one to work cause I couldn't wait to get there, you know? Mm-hmm. So as you're transitioning into into picking out a, a college to go to and what that next step's going to be, you end up going into industrial engineering um, yep. at Bethel and then Iowa State. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned the dealership side, but was there a particular path you were kind of chasing with that engineering background or just looking to study something you enjoyed? So, <clears throat> no, not necessarily. I mean, I always knew I wanted to be an industrial or an engineer. I thought I'd be mechanical or aerospace because I've always loved airplanes. Um mm-hmm. I wasn't quite smart enough to get past dynamics, which you needed for both aerospace and mechanical engineering. So I went the route of industrial, which is more like, you know, what I believed at the time was a lot of CEOs, presidents of companies, general managers were industrial engineers because it's a very practical how to mm-hmm. make a factory work and things like that. So um, that was the route I went. I wanted to run a manufacturing type company of something. I never intended to be in construction. I still to this day don't really care for construction. <laughs> well, I mean, my next question is going to be then like prior to getting into Redline and doing this this power sports section of your life, really, where were you going to be headed? Like what was the career trajectory after college if Redline doesn't show up? Well, again, um, what's kind of funny when we first <clears throat> when we first showed this thing in West Yellowstone in – I think April of 99 or March of 99, I had my flush letters from Polaris and Articat hanging on the Oh, really? Yeah. I, you know, I was trying to find a lifestyle brand. I applied at Rollerblade, which was a big company back then, like very in the news. Um, uh, Then Articat, Polaris, but I got flushed by all of them. I mean, quite honestly, I was a C plus student. I wasn't an A student and, um, (laughs) you know, but I've always just, you know, kind of been an entrepreneur and uh um, but yeah so i was looking but it was 1990 and job market was tough Mm -hmm. girlfriend's dad put me to work doing some computer work at his company and the president there liked me and they made me an offer so i went into uh construction right there in 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 st paul and uh worked for commonwealth electric as a project manager and estimator and i've kind of been in electrical ever since you know except for my snowmobile stint um Mm -hmm working projects around 3M and, and stuff like that. And then later went into business or my, my went to work for a friend of mine from college. And that's how I ended up in California, actually. So, gotcha. but yeah, I just thought I was going to be, you know, snowmobile on the weekends and ride dirt bikes on the weekend and, you know, do construction all day. So, mm, okay. So I'm sure you kind of, 
daydreamt a little bit in the background like yeah maybe someday i could do a sled or maybe i'll do some kind of power sports toy or something but like when did you really say you know i'm i'm gonna pursue this i'm gonna see what i can make of this so the stand up working with this company like i say when i went to work for my buddy from college it was just a bunch of us college friends and we were opening an around the country and i ended up in san diego well the company we ended up selling it and i was part owner and so i had a few dollars in my pocket not a lot but a few and uh, another guy that worked for me out there who Chris Rodewald ended up being my red line partner. You know, we, I know right where we're sitting, we were sitting about a half mile from where I'm sitting right now. And he just looked at me, he goes, Kent, he goes, you can do anything. He goes, all practicality aside, he goes, what would you do? Because we were looking at doing lighting and, and energy efficiency stuff, going to Hawaii. I mean, we were single and, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know 28 years old or something like that. I don't remember exactly. And uh, like, well, let's go start lighting company over in Hawaii and surf and have fun. And um, and I just told him, I mean, he'll tell this story too. He'll tell exactly like I'm telling. I said, you know, you got to hear me out on this one. <clears throat> but I said, I think there's a market for a snowmobile. And he's like, a snowmobile? Like he goes like on the, one of those things you drive on the snow? I go, yeah. I go, there's like four manufacturers that's like Honda, Kawasaki, Suzuki, and Yamaha. And I go, I think there's a play for a high-end snowmobile. And I go, I know just the guy that I think we can use to build it. And he was in from minute one. He was in. Mm. He's like, okay, never been on one, but I'm in. And uh, we went over and met with Bill Savage, who was the off-road guy. Mm-hmm. I actually met Bill Savage because when I was out here, like I said, I was racing dirt bikes every weekend. And I was going to race the Lake Elsinore Grand Prix, mm-hmm. like Honda Elsinore and all that. So oh, yeah. I went up there and I was like, I had rode an ATK, which is an odd dirt bike. And I was just about ready to go. I looked down and my wheel was cracked. I'm like, uh oh. And so I asked around and everybody's like, oh, you need to go see Bill Savage. He, he's the guy that could weld that up for you quick. So I went and saw him and he doesn't do anything quick, but he did get it done. And <laughs> so I went and raced the uh, uh, Elsinore Grand Prix, lined up right behind Malcolm Smith which I thought was Oh, nice. Cool. Nice. Yeah. Literally he was riding a Husaberg and right behind him and, uh, rode it. And then they had this big event afterwards and there was these watercraft there. They were these, the, have you ever seen aqua jets? Oh yeah. So, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, he was the guy that made vector cars, but these aqua jet things are there. They're like motorcycles on the water. And I'm looking, I'm like, well, that's a cool engine. He had a two cylinder and a three cylinder. And then he had one with the Yamaha and he had three of them there, um, purple, red, and yellow. And, uh, anyway, so that trip, I met Bill Savage and ultimately that's how I met my engine builder. Mm. It took me a while, but put it all together. <laughs> so, Gotcha. Gotcha. So, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had a lot of these pieces together. Like I know this guy and I have a source for this and things like that. And obviously you had the desire and the, the dream to do something with it, but was it still kind of difficult to, to commit and rip the bandaid off and say, we're going to do it or, or was it easy? Well, by this time I was engaged. So yes, my future <laughs> wife who is now, you know, she's like, what do you mean we're getting married and you're starting a snowmobile business, but <laughs> you know, so be it. Um, turns out this is small world. Um, when we were up in LA, I think I, getting introduced to sushi and this guy sitting across the table, he's like, you're doing what? He goes, you know, I do all the marketing for Yamaha snowmobiles, right? I go, no. (laughs) 
goes, yeah. He goes, I, I go every year with them on their snowshoe. I do all the photography and marketing brochures and stuff for Yamaha snowmobiles. Next person I meet, didn't unbeknownst, they didn't know each other either. This was like another new guy to the circle. Turns out he's president of Yamaha Electronics. Later mm. becomes Yamaha's president of motorsports, Henio uh, Arcangeli. So one of my really good friends, turns out, was president of Yamaha as I was going through this. <laughs> Oh now I talk, I talk about everything. He was one of those guys, you know, he took me to X games and stuff like that. He wouldn't even look like the direction of a Honda. I'm like digging through everything. Look at this. You see this? And, uh, but they're very stoic, you know? Oh, for sure. For sure. Yeah. It's, that's definitely one of the things you'll notice these days. And even it goes beyond snow. It's just power sports in general, the difference in, in philosophies and engineering between Japanese, Austrian, North American. It's all, it's all really different. If you really think about yeah. it. So I don't remember a question you asked me to get there, but that's... <laughs> Oh no, it's all good. It's all good. So kind of the, the late nineties and early two thousands. So like, you know, I've kind of covered it a little bit on this show, but basically mid to late eighties is when we lose all the manufacturers and this is this yep. is not unique to snowmobiling it happens in ag it happened to a lot of different places so motorcycles were decimated yeah. mm -hmm. after 86. yep 100 percent. yeah it, it was felt pretty widespread and uh so early 90s snowmobiling starting to pick up a little bit and then mid to late is what a lot of people will still say is kind of like the second heyday but late 90s early 2000s we start to see some more interest from outside like new manufacturers coming in with with the blade and then uh ad boivin has a, the snowhawk like you were coming in at an interesting time where it seemed like there was room for a for another guy to play yeah so <clears throat> yeah so that's interesting i mean at west yellowstone in that first heydays beset was another one he had like a twin track you had trail mm -hmm. roamer src cmx you know crazy mountain extreme and then there was one other guy, I can't remember the name, but there was also this one that you probably never remember. Goat, G-O-A-T. No. So goat <laughs> typically means greatest of all time, like the you know, Ricky Carmichael or whatever. But this stood for goes over all terrain. Mm. It was, I kid you not, it looked just it, it supposedly they had nothing to do with each other. It looked just like a crazy mountain extreme, but mm. it was finished with like a leather seed and different headlights and some different things, but they were all at West Yellowstone. So Blade, Us, Goat, CMX, and Snowhawk were all at that first tent, so to speak, at West Yellowstone in 99. Mm -hmm. It's kind of interesting, though, because, like, you know, at least for, for you guys, Blade and Snowhawk, even though you guys are, are all long gone, those three names still resonate with a lot of people. They're still cult, cult followings for all three of those guys, but I haven't heard of those other brands, like, they must have just not stuck around or not had commercial. Well, success. Crazy Mountain Extreme, you, you, in fact, I saw one for sale. If you Google that, you'll see. I think they might still be in business doing something, but the goat, I, you know, never really saw, but it was kind of cool, you know? <laughs> so for you guys entering the market um, with the Revolt, obviously we'll, we'll get into some of the more particular design changes. Can I correct you on one thing? It's Revolt. Yeah. It's not Revolt, <laughs> it's Revolt. Yeah, it's Revolt. Yeah. So our, our thing was, Every revolution starts with a revolt. So our first, our first four stroke when we were trying to do this was called the revolution, mm -hmm. 954 revolution, revolt, rebellion was what we were going to call the 
So it's kind of the revolt, re revolution, rebellion. They mm. all kind of go together. And then the riot was next one's going to be the riot. So that was going to be that, a 600 single. That makes a lot more sense now, but I'm going to have to retrain 28 years of, <laughs> of revolt vocabulary. Yeah. So, so I'll, yeah, I'll in fact, I have a t-shirt somewhere. It's like, it says every, every good revolution or every revolution starts with a revolt. Mm, see, so. see that context makes way more sense. Oh, it's going to be tough, <laughs> but, uh, so yeah, for you guys, you know, obviously we'll get into some of those design uh, changes and some of the unique things a little bit later, but what kind of gaps in the market were you trying to exploit? Like, was there any, anything particular or were you just trying to come in with Ducati. something super rad? Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, so everybody graduates college and buys a car. I went down and bought a Ducati. And mm -hmm. so when I, when I moved to Minneapolis in 1990, I had a Ducati 750 Sport that I just bought. Seemed really expensive. It was $6,700. I still have it. Mm -hmm. It's upstairs here. Um, oh, nice. And it was a 750 air-cooled. And that was right when the CBR 600 F, F1 or two, F2 was coming out. And I remember one mm -hmm. night I was in Crystal, Minnesota. We'd go out like 11 o'clock at night and ride till 1 or 2 in the morning. And I showed up at Taco Bell and Crystal and there was 16, 18 of us, 16 had Honda F2, the purple and black ones, one red and white one in my Ducati. And mm -hmm. every one of those 600s was faster than my Ducati, but everybody sat and stared at my Ducati. And oh, I'm like, yeah. that's what I tried to be. You know, I wasn't trying to mm -hmm. be the fastest snowmobile. I was just trying to be something different that people could enjoy and, and, enjoy owning you know um and so i mean seriously it's like the rear exhaust is it's all because of you know it's a massimo Tam tamarini or whatever i mean in the ducati 916 and to this day the 916 still looks good mm -hmm. so but that was it we wanted to be the ducati of snowmobiles okay okay so kind of take me back then to to the drawing board of it like you know that's that's kind of what you're trying to emulate it's what you're trying to be but where did you guys have to start with the design? Like what, what did that first kind of prototype slide kind of look like? So uh, if you want to add it to this, I'll get you a picture of it. In fact, it's funny. It just surfaced last year. A guy in Minnesota owns it now. And, and, uh, oh, nice. in fact, I, I can get in Facebook, he can show it to you, but I'm not sure that anybody ever saw the first one other than a couple of our riders. Uh, we wrote it mostly on the dirt. Um, if you put you you mentioned sled storm when we were talking beforehand if you go in there black max or something like that or rust rust bucket it's rust bucket okay. in the show yeah. in the in the game <laughs> yeah i mean it's, it looks a little different but that's pretty much if you look see a picture of it and rust bucket in the in sled storm that's what it is but mm -hmm. it was all black you know rear exhaust v-twin four stroke um had a pull start on it but you couldn't pull out you couldn't start it for anything with a pull start. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> Never figured that one out. Uh, had a Folin motor, which is made in Sweden, which was uh, really cool. If you don't know Folin, Folin, um, Lars Nilsson was the guy that really developed the first Husqvarna four stroke that mm -hmm. later, you know, Husaberg, Cannondale worked with them, not on their production one, but on their prototypes. Uh, really genius guy. Um, mm -hmm. But anyway, so the first one had that in it. There was a lot of things in that first sled that stuck, not the drivetrain, you know, because okay. we were direct drive trying to do a Bearcat type secondary. But um, if you look like the long, two long swing arms, 
exact same position. The A-arm positions on the front are the same. The A-arms are pretty close to the first designs what we stuck with for years. Um, mm -hmm. We gusted to them and we did a few things like that. But for the most part, the, the front A-arms and the rear suspension is the same. How the track moves and the, and the, and the, um, the rails, that changed dozens of times. But, oh, really? But yeah, that first, you know, we, we started with the shock outside too, and we just could not get the splines to hold. We used mm. unobtainium metals and heat treats, and we couldn't get it to last. So that's why we had to put the shock inside. And uh, in all honesty, we did that four months before production, and Ooh, the yeah. rear suspension works friggin' amazing now. Mm. It got heavier. I was going to ask them because there's there's a lot of these aspects where like, you know, I'm sure you had this these grandiose plans at the beginning and then you're working through manufacturability and what actually works. And this happens to OEMs all the time. Like ID will come up with an amazing design and then it makes it to engineering and we're like, oh, we can't do that. We can't produce that. That's that's not going to work. That's not going to be strong enough. Like what were some of those those things that you had to get rid of? I mean, you mentioned a couple of them, but what are some of the designs that had to get thrown out? Well, so we had a we had a 700 we call it snowcrosser and the owner i i actually pinged him this year i go i want to see what it weighs put it on a scale sometime i remember that it actually weighed 350 pounds but oh, our, really if, if, anybody you talked to about the revolt it got heavy it's way heavy hard to move around but you know when we started through the i might be wrong on this sscc snowmobile something certification process we, we gained a mm -hmm. hundred pounds, if not more. Oh, really? Oh yeah. I mean, heavier lights, foam padding, uh, encapsulating. Is that noise bothering you in the back right now? No, no, we're good. Don't worry about All it. Right. Um, they'll stop in a minute here, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, um, things on the pipe for noise, everything, you know, silencers mm -hmm. heavier, uh, and we weren't loud, but it just to get everything for the certification, it just kept. And then we were under a gun. So when you're doing something in a hurry, mm -hmm. you know, you can't optimize, right? You can't, you don't have time to test the lighter. You go straight for the heavier, you know, cause we were pushed heavy to get these first 50 out. So mm -hmm. uh, again, we, we picked up a hundred pounds, then everything changes, you know, shock settings change, spring settings change. Yeah. Um, it's kind of, a, it was a really difficult spiral and, uh, mm. Yeah, it, it sounds kind of like so as you're going through this and you're basically making the sled compliant, which is everybody's nightmare, always still a pain in the ass to this day. But as yeah. you're going through and getting all that stuff done, how much of those how much like of that additional weight was actually like like failed product during validation that you had to make your own changes versus literally just making the sled legal? So not much of it was failed. Um, mm hmm. I'll give you a list. Of, I mean, I sent it to some of my friends a while ago, a list of all the changes from year one to year two. Um, mm -hmm. The pipe was the biggest thing. We made the pipe extra heavy. We were having pipe issues, getting them to, mm -hmm. to last. We had kind of like a, uh, similar to an Articat Firecat that circled around and came up, you know, they went out and down mm -hmm. the bottom. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it was our three point, motor mounts or what it was doing the harmonic something but we couldn't make them last so the pipe got heavy the silencer got heavy the silencer is a pig it looks kind of cool 
but <laughs> it, you know, it just, those things, you know, the pipe was our biggest failure. We just could not get that thing to last. Um, the motor was actually pretty solid. It needed a little bit more time and time in the chassis. Cause one of the things we struggled with, you got an engine builder here and a, a snowmobile builder here, right? And you're working together mm -hmm. to put these things together. Well, Articatter players very seldom start with a brand new engine and a brand new chassis. They usually start mm -hmm. with a new chassis with their old engine, you know what I mean? To get mm -hmm. the chassis worked out. Well, I had arguments going, you know, the engine's not cooling. Well, it's the sled or is it the engine? You know, is it the mm -hmm. fact that our engine designer didn't want, you know, was trying to make it too narrow and, you know, there wasn't enough room between the cylinders. I don't know. But that was one of the issues. So um, that and then the exhaust, it was just a, we had so many new parts going into one mm -hmm. sled. I mean, honestly, I, I don't think many manufacturers do it this way because they don't usually start from the ground, ground up with everything new. Yeah, that kind of begs the question then for me, like how much of, you know, you can ballpark it too, but how much of that sled was actually just like, off the shelf components from a supplier or was everything basically new and tooled and designed in-house? So clutches were team performance or Comet mm -hmm. primary team secondary. We worked a lot with mm -hmm. team. Um, pistons, I don't remember what they were, but I think you can find them in a Yamaha somewhere, Yamaha watercraft mm -hmm. or snowmobile. I don't remember exactly. Uh, the reeds in the engine were Moto Tussinari out of a KX500. Um, track, you know, we bought the yeah. track. Everything else was pretty much ours. Um, even the controls, you know. I tried to buy, We, you'll see some prototypes out there with rev controls. Um, mm -hmm. But like I was telling you earlier, it's like to buy in retail, they're too expensive. Skidoo mm -hmm. wasn't interested in selling them. I was told that they spent $180,000 tooling their controls for the rev. So we looked at them and I went out and bought these little lighted switches from DigiKey in Thief River Falls. Yep. And we got, you know, rapid prototyping. We rapid prototyped some housings and I had a designer and a company work on it. I think I spent like four, four grand or, or maybe it wasn't even $4,000. <laughs> it was like $4,000. I mean, if you see our controls on the thing, I think they're pretty good. For a first-time mm -hmm. manufacturer with proprietary controls, they didn't work too bad. Um, mm -hmm. Those little switches were like two bucks a piece or something like that. And, <laughs> but yet, it, it's a detail that um, made it ours. You know, nobody's mm -hmm. going to hop on the thing. And go, oh, this is just a player's control. You know, never. I mm -hmm. hated that part of it. You would never get on a Ducati and go, well, it's got Honda controls. You know, but mm -hmm. you know, we bought Brembo brakes, obviously stuff like that. Um, but otherwise, everything's pretty proprietary, even the gauges. Well, yeah, and then kind of the reason I brought this up is because, you know, for a lot of OEMs, even to this day, particularly these days, there's a lot of partnering with established brands, like basically limiting the amount of stuff you have to do in-house and partnering with people that you know already know how to do it. For you guys, it's basically a blank slate. Like, you have to validate and design basically everything so it's there's there's a lot of work involved in that yeah i there is i had some seriously talented people on the team seriously mm -hmm. jared shots dan robinson bill savage you know john hagan you know just some really um john Kalfanico, you know curse caruth 
different people you probably see through the industry. I'm sorry if I missed anybody good, but we had not that many, but seriously, some unbelievable talent. Yeah, I was, that was one of my next questions just because again, it's a really small team. You guys accomplish a lot, but I was curious, some of those big names you pulled and if it kind of like, if there were whispers around, like if you had people searching out the company trying to join, or if you just kind of handpicked some of the top guys you knew or what the story was. So Jared Shaw is probably one of our sharpest young. He right out of college, came out in spring break. He sent us, we got letters all the time. Well, I won't drop the name because I can't, I don't, I can't guarantee it's this one guy, but uh, somebody, a big snowmobile name that, you know, used when he was like 14 would write us letters every week. And, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, so this guy, Jared Shaw, one of our lead guys still, you know, builds a lot of cool stuff to this day. He, uh, he came out in spring break. He's like, finally he goes, look, I keep sending you letters. You don't respond. I'm here for the week. Put me to work. And we're like, mm -hmm. uh, what do I, you know, sat in front of the computer and, Three days later, we're like, you want you want a job after college, <laughs> you know? And uh, you know, again, probably twenty three years old, but he's been, you know, he was a key part of our team. As far as big names, I know you asked that question. I mean, we pursued a couple people. Um, mm -hmm. One of the guys from Articat, Doug Braswell, we talked to a lot, tried to make him an offer. I know it never quite worked out. He was Roger Skimes, I think, right hand man, you know, from Articat. Mm -hmm. um, we had a guy, Clyde Fessler, on the board from Harley Davidson. Tried to get Eric Buell on the board. But again, not hands-on, but just board members, um, mm -hmm. things like that. But other than that, I mean, we're in Southern California. I pulled from the off-road industry and tried mm -hmm. to get them to look at the snowmobile industry another way. And there's some there's some tricks about snowmobiles. You know, one of the issues we didn't know a lot about was carb icing and things like that too. You know, airbox design, mm -hmm. things like that for snowmobile. It's fairly fairly tricky. So those mm -hmm. are some of the things that we were working on last minute that. You know, when you're just running K&Ns in the desert, it's a, a different deal. <laughs> I mean, that's a perfect segue into the next topic, because I was going to ask, like, you know, later on, production is, is North Dakota. You guys do a lot of uh, testing in Minnesota. But basically, how much of that initial design was done in California? Oh, all of it. Um, all of it. You know, our from day one. So what's funny is you've heard of Excelsior Henderson, I'm sure. Mm hmm. I just picked one up. I just got one a couple of weeks ago. Well, maybe a couple oh, months nice. now, but eight miles on it runs. Like, oh, really? It was perfect. So I knew the Excelsior Henderson story really well because we followed it. Um, and we were trying to raise money and I had to tell all the reasons we were different. Right. Mm -hmm. um, not to, I'm not bashing what the Hanlon brothers did because monumental task. And, um, but they spent a lot of money. They built a big factory, I don't remember $8 million paint booth, all this kind of stuff. And so we, we started a process with, we're going to outsource, we're going to use other people's facilities, other people's infrastructure. We're going to find mm -hmm. a town that wants to put some money behind us, make us move there. So I always told that story and in our hearts, that's what we wanted to do. Cause California is not exactly known for manufacturing and, uh, mm -hmm. but it's a great place to prototype. You know, I could, man, mm -hmm. I had more things at my fingertips than you can imagine out here. And, uh, so I knew I'd tell that story a lot. So we always thought we'd end up in Minnesota or someplace like that. And like my president, Mark Payne, you know, he came on board with that, you know, the, Hey, we're moving this thing. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and he's the guy that helped me build out the board and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, 
you know, anyway, so that's how we kind of end up in Fargo. But Fargo was less than 12 months of our existence, probably. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So not much was developed there. The, uh, we sent guys out from here to help them put together manufacturing stations and processes. We set it all up out here and then we kind of moved the, the basic design. Then they, you know, they certainly had some expertise. They're the guys from like Gemcar, which now owned by Polaris. Um, mm -hmm. You know, all those guys that did that originally. So they also gave us money. You know, they, they mm -hmm. gave us some, some loans and ultimately it kind of was part of our demise. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I was curious about some of those earlier sleds and where that development was because you see all basically, yeah, you see all the you see all the pictures and it's basically a sled with with wheels on the with you know ATV wheels on the the front spindles ripping around in the in the desert, which yeah. must have been must have been interesting and but just maybe one of the most unique ways of of snowmobile testing for sure. Well, you know, what's funny is we actually have we had access to snow. Uh, probably longer season than almost anybody because like this last year mammoth mountain up in you mm -hmm. know california here they skied into august i've skied on fourth of july there before and uh really so we did that you know one year we rode late into april in tug hill up in new york um mm -hmm. and then one summer we tested all summer at whistler you know which it's just mm -hmm. easy for me to get to whistler as it is for you mm -hmm. um you know, we, we helicoptered a container of snowmobiles and parts <laughs> into the glacier up there north of Squamish and tested for weeks. Oh, that's that's so cool. That's so awesome. Yeah. And fortunately, you know, I'm I'm back home trying to raise money and keep the wheels on things. I didn't get to, I went to Squamish once, but I, I, I didn't get to ride up there on the glacier much. I actually knocked myself out on that. We had a Blair Morgan Rev and um, I was there for like an hour. I hit a... Mm -hmm nothing bump and fell off or hit my head really hard kind of knocked myself a little screwy so <laughs> really dumb oh, man so i want to kind of transition a little bit here um with a little bit more of kind of the dealer network side because yeah. in power sports as a whole this is a, a big miss that we see with a lot of people who try and go in as oems they they just come in with a really sweet product and they don't build out any dealer network and then it basically has nowhere to go so for you guys, what was kind of your strategy of, of building up a dealer network for Redline? So first off, our national sales manager, Rob Massey, and his help, um, his right-hand man, Guy Bedell and Brent Weina, and, and then my partner, Chris Rodewald, did all that. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, the very initial belief was you can't do this without a dealer network. Um, mm -hmm. I also know that back in the day, I think there was 14 Polaris dealers in, inside the Minneapolis circle or something ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, they, this is not a model for success. You got to mm -hmm. give these dealers some margin. We're not going to build that many. So we were trying to keep, if I remember right, two or tw 2,000 or 2,500 per snowmobile for the dealer, you know, which is a lot mm -hmm. that day. Um, mm -hmm. It's still, you know, not, I wanted to be at 20%, but I don't know if we ever quite got there. Um, but yeah, the dealer network's part. We had really good dealer network and we advertised for them and put their names out there. One of our biggest things was, you know, we're not going to be a big enough brand to start with that you can be a standalone Redline dealer. We're not Honda. But you mm -hmm. know what? If you're an Articat dealer, so if you're an Articat guy, picture this 20 years ago. I, mean, I don't know if brand loyalty is quite the same today, but you're not going to get caught dead in a Polaris dealer. And if mm -hmm. you're a Polaris guy, you're not going to walk into a Skidoo dealer. And if you're, uh, you know, you're just probably not going to, but if all of a mm -hmm. sudden you're an Articat dealer and you've got red lines in there, you might get that 
skidoo guy, the Polaris guy, or the Yamaha guy to walk in there to see it. Once mm-hmm. they know where your front door is, you got an opportunity to sell them a helmet or anything else. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of our pitch. You know, we wanted to be interesting to where you could draw new people into your dealership. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. It was a big deal. Um, so we really had no, a lot of dealer interest. It, it waned a little bit when we took time, you know, we weren't delivering and we were late and all that kind of stuff, but most of them stuck by us because we didn't ask them for much money or anything like that. It's not like you had to pay to be a dealer or anything like that. So. Well, I was, I was going to ask about that because you, you mentioned the margin percentage thing. And I was curious, like, you know, you're looking at, at margin or, or flooring plans and stuff like that. But it, it sounds like you were basically approaching it as, Hey, I have a really cool product and I'm going to try and make it really easy for you to become a dealer and show you why it's going to benefit you in all these other ways, not just selling my own product. Yeah, we had we had dealer financing lined up for them too and, you know, clothing and, and things. And we had a product line, you know, that we had a product path, you know, it wasn't all there by any means, but, um, you know, we wanted to be a, an enhancement to a dealer, not a big, you know, not a, not a drag. Because those were tough days on dealers back then, mm-hmm. you know, Polaris and Articat, man, they would load these dealers up with so much product and literally put them on top of each other. That was part of my pitch every time I went. You know, one one or two dealers per market, depending on the size, but typically one, you know, mm-hmm. and the right one. Mm-hmm. Yep, for sure. So, you know, ultimately, and we can get into this too, you guys end up delivering or shipping like 50 or so. The volume's not crazy high, but in that area, in, they're kind of in various stages of being complete. But for some of the ones that made it to a dealer fully complete that retailed, what were what was kind of some of the feedback? So a lot of them never got much more than 150, 250, 500 miles because, again, the pipe issue was a kind of mm-hmm. a big deal. Um, I know a guy in, in Illinois, Bob Roberts, he's got a lot of miles on his. He loves it. You know, rides mm-hmm. it to this day. Uh, Sean Roberts, actually, there's a funny story there, but anybody watching it will know. Um, or actually, Sean. <laughs> anyway, um, but, you know, it's funny because one time somebody – Maybe a year or two later, I picked up my home phone and there's a guy on the line from South Dakota. And he's like, he goes, hey, you know, I, I just really want to, um, I, I need some help with the gauges. You got any connection on the gauges? I'm like, well, not really. I go, why? What's wrong? He goes, well, his speedometer doesn't work and the mileage doesn't work. I go, well, we got talking like, how many miles you got on this thing? He goes, well, 2,500. I go, you got 2,500 miles on a red line? <laughs> <laughs> he goes yeah why i go um, and i'm going through i go and the only problem you've had is the gauges yeah i go what are, you got other snowmobiles yeah i got a brand new skidoo or i got a brand new players too he goes but i ride my red line he goes this thing runs like yeah, i don't remember the exact words but he's like it's fast and blah 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 and it's just you know it's just so much cooler i go haven't had a pipe break no haven't had a gasket and a head gas go back no you think because you're starting to scare me. <laughs> so, you know what? If it's a unicorn or not, I don't know. But man, <laughs> that guy in South Dakota had 2,500 miles on it and loved it. So, that was not the norm. I mean, I'm not going to sit mm-hmm. here and kid you and say they were all great. They went out the door. Um, they weren't. They weren't perfect. Um, they had a really good start, you know, and we had some issues that we were working out. We ran out of time, you know, mm-hmm. and then when the time ran out, the money started running out. Um, so 
you're getting the money pulled together for this because I'm not independently wealthy. That was the the toughest thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I would fly back to back red eyes to New York for meetings, you know, because I had to get back to, you know, I had little kids. I had, you know, uh, business to run and um, I'd fly out a red eye, do meetings all day and fly out that night and I'd be back to work, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the stories that nobody probably or some people know, but not a lot of people know. So September hay or heydays in 2001. Um, I'm flying home. I get I get home and uh, go to bed late on Sunday night, and uh, I get woken up by they're attacking us. They're attacking us, and you know, blah blah blah. And I was like, what? You know, mm-hmm. what do you mean? You know, World Trade Centers are down. And I go, what? So I woke up to September 11th, 2001. Well. On September 13th or 14th, on that Thursday, I had a guy coming in, flying his own Gulfstream in to Palomar Airport, and he had just cashed out a big investment in Cirrus Aircraft. Mm-hmm. And he was committed to 10 to $15 million. And if he did it, another guy in Cirrus was coming in for, you know, seven, eight million. Um, so I was at heydays, but man, our funding is secured. We had, a, mm-hmm. you know, 15, 20 million dollars coming in without a lot of fees and stuff like that, because it was from my CFO, who was a former CFO of Cirrus, Cirrus Aircraft. And he had put these guys in it, pulled them out. You know, they just cashed out 35 million bucks. They're going to reinvest it. So September 11th hits, all planes are grounded and just so happens. Um, anyway, there are mid- Middle Eastern descent family money in Texas. And uh, mm-hmm. that never came to fruition. I we'd signed a big lease. We'd made a lot of mm-hmm. commitments, but the check never cleared. <laughs> All mm-hmm. he was doing, he goes, I talked to a guy on the phone several times. He's like, Ken, I'm just coming out, shake your hand, see it, you know, for face to face. And the deal was done, you know, mm-hmm. but September 11th. Now, again, that's my September 11th horror story. Not as bad as many, many other people's, you know, but, mm-hmm. but still it's like, that's kind of, you know, and after that, you know, we were scrambling. It's like, man, how do, what do we do here? How do we get money to go into production? And, and uh, you know, so that's why we did that early stage IPO. So you kind of mentioned then basically needing that funding, like that was going to be a, a lifeline in a lot of ways. If we're, if we're backtracking a little bit from that, when did you yourself first start to kind of see some, some trouble on the horizon, not just with the product issues itself, but funding and long-term strategy? We had no problems. No, um, <laughs> we were good. We were good. Well, you know, I was, I was optimistic. I mean, I was young, um, never managed a project quite like this and, uh, um, I always had a path to success. It's just mm-hmm. when the money started drying up and when we missed a couple of years. So uh, I think probably the biggest oversight that threw off my timeline was the, the, the certification testing, mm-hmm. because then we were backtracking, we were fixing things that didn't need to be fixed necessarily. Um, I mean, I don't know if you remember Firecats, those sleds were not good for 5,000 miles. <laughs> those those initial, car, yeah. those initial O3s, if you can find them not grenaded, they're like the fastest thing you'll ever ride. Oh, love that sled. <laughs> I thought I really liked that sled, but you know, and even if, if you didn't grenade it, the thing was not going to hold together. You know, the chassis and stuff like that was not built 
for thousands of miles. So I'm just like, mm-hmm. you know, guys, you know, we were, if you see the production versus the pre-production, it's like all the gusseting and all that stuff. We added all that because of certification and just to cover mm-hmm. our butts, you know, it's like, but again, then like as I said before, you start putting on weight, the next thing you know, you're spring, you're sprung too soft, your valving changes on your shocks and mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a rabbit it's, hole. It's a rabbit hole. And we had other issues we needed to be working on, you know? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so when that, uh, when you basically, you know, post nine 11, when you lose that vital lifeline of, of funding, what was, what was the next move? Like, were you scrambling to figure something out? What was the next play? Well, I mean, obviously, yeah. I mean, um, we, we got our rent paid, all that stuff. And, uh, we went back to, you know, Curtis Wyatt was one of our main, main fundraisers from Gun Allen Financial. And, you know, he ponied up and raised, found more money and found more private investors. And then that's when they came out with this idea to do an early stage, uh, pre-revenue IPO. Not, a, it was not a retail deal. It was just kind of a, a very small, I mean, it was like 1200 investors. It wasn't not like an IPO today, but we were the fourth and fourth or seventh IPO of 2004, I guess it would be, which was a tough time. If we were mm-hmm. in April doing an IPO, uh, and it was only number four of the year, I mean, it was not a good time to be raising money, but we did it. You know, it just costs a lot of money to raise money. It takes a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. And when you're not focused on the sled, you're focused on something else. You know, it takes away a lot of your time. So was that was that initial boost in funding? Was that basically to to keep the lights on, or were you trying to fund basically another production run of sleds? Like well, what was the primary we goal funding, of it? We were looking to fund production by that point. Gotcha. You know, tooling okay. and and production parts, and to keep the things going. We did some early rounds too with friends and family and things like that that got us into you know through the prototyping stage. But you know, produ- you work in a manufacturer, it costs a lot of money to production tooling for weldments mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. It all adds up. It all yeah, adds we up. We cast our own engines, all that stuff. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, I mean, did you, when was the last actual production run of the, of the revolt? We built 50 and that was it. 55 was I it. think actually went out the door, 56, something like that. Gotcha. Okay. Um, okay. I think there was 15 pre-production which have a different hood and then there's Mm -hmm. it's been interesting because this last year there's a whole new kind of like level of interest in in what we did Mm -hmm. it it racked my memory but it's like going i don't remember doing that you know it's like (laughs) it's like why is that rear suspension with that hood i mean it's kind of like but then i start piecing all together i started remembering you know what we were doing so well, it, it is kind of funny. Like there's, there's a handful of guys scattered throughout the U S that, that basically ended up with a lot of the parts that were left in the plant. Yeah. So you can basically like anybody who has a revolt, they're fat chance. They're all exactly the same. They're all going to have like slightly different parts on them or a different production run. And this guy didn't get this part. So he found this and they're all slightly different. Well, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's some guys that scab some stuff together too. The 55 that left the factory are very close to the same. Mm-hmm. I think 20 of those went out without exhaust. So yes, guys, okay. fix that. Um, but those are pretty much identical. I mean, the hoods, everything, all that kind of stuff. You know, you're going to find there's 
the seat was one of my least favorite parts. And we oh, had really? a seat design that looked a lot better for the next year. But we had 750 of those things in a box. They came from a company oh, called really? Speed Defies Gravity. And there was a semi-trailer sitting up in Fargo for a long time. And oh. you can find seats everywhere. I mean, you look mm -hmm. around. I mean, I, I know several people that have seats for them. Then there's some things you cannot find. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we did, there are some different motor runs. We did, I think we built 15 or 25 motors in Vista. And they're powder coated a different way than production engines that were assembled mm -hmm. in Detroit. Um, mm -hmm. But, but yeah, there's 15. And then, so when, when we finally got the keys taken from us in Vista, California, um, there was, man, there was a lot of frames because learning mm -hmm. how to weld sequence those things. So they were straight, you mm -hmm. know, we scrapped a lot. And there's a lot of those frames around that I know people are trying to put sleds together out of, and you know, they're going to have a tough time. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you got production parts from Fargo, they're pretty good. If they came from anywhere else, you know, who knows what you got, but that's just part of it, you know? So when basically the, the plug gets pulled at least for the for the snow chapter of of red line like what's what's going on at that day like is is the factory in fargo still full are you guys still full steam ahead in california or was everybody kind of like no because we're public it? we we knew the writing on the wall probably mm -hmm. three months before you okay. could disclose it because we're public um mm -hmm. the last day at red line we sat and we watched the movie Tucker, a man in his machine or man in his dream. I don't remember Tucker, a man in his machine about the Tucker automotive. There was mm -hmm. a lot of similarities. He built 50. He used a helicopter motor to begin with, um, you know, different things. It was a great movie. We sat there, cried, ate pizza, you know, and then they came and locked us out. Mm -hmm. uh, Fargo. Those were the guys that put us into bankruptcy. The investors in mm -hmm. Fargo. We borrowed some money for them from production. We missed a payment. They foreclosed pretty fast. At that mm. point, I was just uh, head of product development, I think maybe VP of product development. I had lost the CEO title, um, I don't know, six months before, a year before. I can't, can't quite remember, but so mm -hmm. some of those decisions were out of my out of my control. Gotcha. Okay. Not saying okay. they're bad or anything. I'm just, you know. But. Yeah. So, I mean you mentioned most of most of the team at least on the design side you guys were all california so did you guys all pretty much just scatter into other power sports jobs or where did anybody you know up? a couple guys remember? went to yamaha i do know that um you know jared went out he worked he was working with highland and some different things for a while um i'd have to really rack my brain to think someone went back to off-road some went you know who knows where um mm -hmm. You know, you asked a question earlier about the buggy thing. That wasn't really anything to do with us. We did the initial mm -hmm. layout and design because that was one of the very first things we did. We thought it might be quicker to put something on the dirt. And we were looking mm -hmm. at kind of doing something like the Drakart, D-R-A-K-A-R-T, or a, a future version of the Honda Odyssey. Never really mm -hmm. saw the whole UTV thing coming, but we thought it'd be kind of fun to have these small, you know, snowmobile engine powered dune buggies. And uh, mm -hmm. we never really built one though. It was, so they must've, uh, we didn't talk about that ever. Um, they must've found the drawings in the, in the computer and just decided, Hey, we should build this, you know? And then they, they, we didn't really have anything to do with the, the, 
the UTV stuff. Okay. Okay. Cause you, you look anywhere and they're always linked. They'll always yeah. say after, after Redline, the snowmobile venture didn't work. They would make UTVs for a couple of years, but you're well, saying there was no because the, the guys in Fargo that funded some of our production ended up with all the trademarks. So the ones that forced us into bankruptcy and then they took the parts and pieces and, you know, and we're trying to do something with them. They had a production facility. They had, you know, um, they had, you know, their money. They were the guys that did gem car and things like that. So they knew their way around building stuff. Gotcha. Gotcha. So one of my last ones in here was going to be like, kind of what was the, the final nail in the coffin. But from the timeline, it basically sounds like it was that, it was that mispayment. Like that was, that was the thing that kind of set, set everything into motion for you. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> uh, Chris and I were, were street fighters, right? And we brought in some prize fighters and, you know, I tried to make sure we never did a deal that cornered you. Um, mm -hmm. always, we always call it, we always knew where the back door was. So if you're caught, you can sneak out the back door. I mean, we had a lot of times, you know, tough times, we had really good times, but I don't know, we were around six years and, um, you know, we never got caught. We never quite ran out of money. We were broke a lot, but we were never out of money. We never, we always knew where the next one was coming from. And we had a lot of help from, again, this guy named Curtis Wyatt raised the money. He always had our back. Um, but, you know, sometimes, you know, if you're, you're, if you're putting your money, do you put it on the prize fighter or the street fighter? You know, mm -hmm. the street fighter yeah. fights dirty and knows how to get out of things. And the prize fighter has more access to bigger names and people and, and uh, lines of credit and things like that. But at the end of the day, I think the, the prize fighters in this deal got caught you know mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. didn't really understand that what happened if we missed production and we did these guys you know it was i was always told these guys don't want our company because at first it was going to be a six-month loan i might like, make sure it's at least a year i go mm -hmm. you know and all i could do is throw my opinion in and really i i'd kind of lost favor with the board and uh well and they're like oh these guys don't want our company well you know what we missed one payment and they foreclosed so fast we didn't know what hit us mm -hmm. and uh you know, my first call was Roger Skyne from Articat. Oh, really? Yep. He, of all people, he's the guy that commiserated with me the most. And I'll never forget that conversation. Um, you know, because he sat there. He goes, ah, Ken, he goes, I, I don't remember now. It's 20 years ago. But he was saying something like, I remember the day that Articat closed their doors. He goes, mm -hmm. what did I do the next day? Where do I go? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I think he went right back into some small shop and they started building snowmobiles again, you know? And it's like, um, so yeah, he, he was always one of my fans. He came out and saw us once and I was kind of always hoping we'd get, you know, an investment from Articat over the years, but it never really happened. Um, That's kind of cool that, uh, that Roger kind of had an interest. Cause even, even when Roger went to Polaris, his he still bled green he still wanted to go back you know so it's kind of cool to, to see that oh yeah i had an interest in you guys yeah. too yeah you know and, and chris toomey from articat i remember one time we wrote mm -hmm. him a letter and he, he was always very gracious um Polaris, not so much <laughs> <laughs> uh, i mean just kind of again just following the narrative here then did you guys ever have did you have a goal to get acquired by a larger brand at any time or were you actually were you really just trying to kind of make your own make your own path fully well you know obviously a big check come in after all the struggles and stuff like that it would have been kind of nice 
Um, no, I would have rather run it. I wish I was still running it to this day. I mean, we had a product path of <laughs> including electric bikes. My um, uh, oh, Steve, oh gosh, I just lost his name. He was on our board of directors. He was the head of Think Mobility for Ford and okay. the electric car division, Rob Stevens. And, uh, you know, we had a product path. I was riding giant electric bicycles to work in 2001 or two. Really? <laughs> you know, pedal assist electric bikes <laughs> yeah. before they long before they were ever heard of. And, uh, you know, we were working with Denali and, you know, I wanted to, you know, my goal was to become a, a new manufacturer with motorcycles, snowmobiles, ATVs. Um, mm -hmm. Very quickly we did, you know, we were in late stage testing of a 250 and 450 sport util or sport ATVs, which were actually amazing. Um, really? Yeah. So when, when I got lost the CEO title and I came back to him and again, the board hated me for this, but they couldn't really get rid of me either. Cause I was kind of the face <laughs> of the company and the one telling the story. And, um, so they stuck me over here and, and I came in, I go, well, you're not going to like it, but I think we need to go this direction. And I had a whole ATV business plan written and I go, I've already got two being built and they were pissed. They were not happy. And, uh, but Chris and I did it on the side with some other people and, um, they weren't revolutionary. They were tried and true. You know, they were mm -hmm. kind of 250 R copies, so to speak with mm -hmm. four stroke and two stroke power plants, good shocks and a good, a good design on it. And, uh, I rode that thing every day at Lake Elsinore for all summer shortly before. Um, raced at one time, thing was super competitive. Um, and I think it would have been a big success and it was going to be something that we can roll out to our dealers fairly quickly. Um, again, a lot of the things that we struggle with on snowmobile weren't part of this, you know, this was kind of our heritage, four wheelers, ATVs, mm -hmm. off road, you know, access to everything in Southern California. We could have turned it pretty fast, but. Oh, you get, keeping snow out of the engine compartment on a snowmobile is tougher than you think. <laughs> and you want to know one uh, of the other things that people hated? I think I told mm -hmm. you this just when we were talking earlier, but it's like throttle pull, no bueno. They didn't like that. Steered a little hard. We, we had a fix for that. But that that open rear with the exhaust and everything looks yeah. neat. It's really hard to keep the snow off your back. Oh, yeah. This is, <laughs> this is, this is my entire point earlier when when like industrial design and engineering and actual applicable stuff meshes like this is where this is where a lot of that stuff gets lost because like it it's a great concept it looks really cool and then you ride it and you're like wow this 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 is weird this doesn't work like it it happens all the time well and it's funny rear exhaust with a four strokes much easier than a two stroke too mm -hmm. you know we started we were going to be four stroke and you know, but we did a pivot because I knew the guy that built those watercraft engines and he's like, I can redesign, you know, our first, our first two engines were glorified watercraft engines. I have a couple of those up here. And then we, from there, we went to a really new design and a totally different port timing and port setup. And, and it was very proprietary, but it was a faster way to market than getting the four stroke. We were working on that too, but it's like, you know, I rode our four stroke quite a bit, but, mm -hmm. um, it wasn't ready. You know, it was fun to ride, but, mm -hmm. uh, like I told you, the engine was too expensive. We couldn't, there's just, 
we would have had to been seventeen, eighteen thousand dollars, and I didn't think there was a market for a ninety to hundred horsepower snowmobile for that kind of money in two thousand four or five. Yeah, and it it would have been interesting because you know Yamaha comes out with the RX one in oh two, I think. Oh three or and, yeah, two or three. Yeah, yeah, and. You know, I did one of these with with Greg Marrier, who was in product planning at Yamaha for a long time, and that was a, a quite the topic in there too. Because, you know, keyboard warriors to this day will always say Yamaha; they'd still be around, they'd still be doing way better if they still had these two strokes. And that, in a lot of ways, like that, that kind of set them on this path of not being able to grow nearly as much. Like the the technology was incredible. It's just the market wasn't ready for it. So it would have been interesting if you guys came in came in hot with a four stroke too, but with a very different look. If it well, again, are the V twin, I'll send you some pictures of them, but it was light. That Fulin was a lightweight motor. Now it had some issues, but it was mm -hmm. basically two Husqvarna's or Husabergs or really the early KTM's, you know, in mm -hmm. a V and the motor was light. I mean, I don't remember. It was like a hundred pounds. 90 to 100 horsepower turbo application possible it was it was neat but it just we weren't quite there i mean um we were going to get there you know one of the things we had in the product path too was a 600 single i had a deal mm -hmm. cut with husenberg for heads and then we were doing the crankcase cylinders all that kind of stuff that was the sled i was actually most excited about personally was like a mm -hmm. 50 horsepower single cylinder lightweight yeah um so it was gonna be called the riot and uh mm -hmm. you know i like lightweight and uh i you know the, our revolt got away from us you know weight wise so mm -hmm. oh that 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 would have been cool i just there's there's so much what if like in this whole story oh, there's so many cool products so much what if <laughs> oh man well i got two more for you two more questions okay. to, to to run through so you know throughout all this you're learning the business you're learning all the challenges you're basically learning what you could have done how you could have done it differently did you ever consider making another run at doing a at doing a sled or chasing this dream one more time after redline goes away so we seriously looked at the atv market for a while then which could have easily gone back towards snowmobiles mm -hmm. um i didn't look at it for 20 years mm -hmm but you'll see another snowmobile from me someday. Oh yeah. <laughs> you heard it here first. <laughs> yep. First time when anybody knows, um, I don't have any timeline. I don't care when it comes out, but you will see another snowmobile and it won't be anything like the red line. Well, I think the market needs fun, fun products again, that aren't 20 grand that aren't 200 horsepower. Well, this is my, I'll get off my soapbox too, but I will, I will have this rant to anybody that wants to hear it, that the sport market or the sport quad market is completely dead. And they say, yeah. well, you know, only, only Yamaha makes one. I said, because Yamaha's 450 is 10 grand. And if you, if you got the guy who can only buy one four wheeler, he's going to buy a Grizzly or a sportsman before he buys a YFZ. Cause it's just so much more practical. If he comes in with a bare bones, $4,500 quad out the door. That's a very different conversation. So mm -hmm. I feel like the snowmobile market could go very similarly to that. Uh, yeah, I agree. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> I'll tell you some stuff offline, but uh, uh, all uh, right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I don't disagree. I think they're, I think the whole industry, I mean, I ride a lot in the desert, dirt bikes. I'm really a dirt bike guy. I mean, it's mm -hmm. what I like. I don't love the UTVs. We have a Honda Talon, you know, it's for my wife and daughter. I, um, but for me personally, you know, the Talons, a hundred horse or whatever, you know, all these new, they're $50,000 out the door, some of them. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, the dad buys one, his kid's still sitting in the back on his iPhone, mm -hmm. you know, because the kid's riding in back, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think a family should have three wheelers and four wheelers and dirt bikes that they can ride, not ride mm -hmm. in while the dad's driving his dune buggy. And these snowmobiles, I mean, I'll tell you what, it's terrifying riding out at Tug Hill. The speeds and, and mm -hmm. too, too many people get killed. And granted, you can get killed on, on a 340 fan cooled too, but let's make it fun again, you know? Um, I know everybody was all hyped this year when Articat was announcing their what what the motor's going to be, and everybody's like, it better be this, or the Articat's mm -hmm. dead. And I'm like, it kind of made me sad. You know, I understand that's their flagship, but, you know, um, I think their 400 should be three grand cheaper, and I think it could be a big seller. You know, a little bit lighter and three grand cheaper. Take off some of the frills. Um, make it fun again. Make it affordable. It's it's funny. I've talked to I've talked to some of the engineers at at Articat when basically when they came out with the with the blast and the four hundred yeah. platform and some of those guys will say that's the most fun sled to ride like that that thing's like it's super light it's got it's got enough power for what you need you can throw it around like it's it's a blast like that's literally what it is so yeah it's I've never ridden one I'm anxious to ride one I do think it could be simpler and smaller or lighter mm -hmm. but but. It sounds amazing. 65 horse, 400 two stroke. It's like, oh, single cylinder. How fun. Easy to work on. Yeah, I think there's there's something to be said as well. And you know, we talk a lot of on this on this show about opportunities to to grow the basically the the snowmobile world and 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 what riders we have because snowmobiling's not getting any bigger. It's just like just like on road, just like motorcycles, it's not getting any bigger. So you're looking for any opportunity you have. And anytime you can make it the barrier of entry cheaper or it's simpler for a new person to understand, that's that's where the the gains can be made. So um yeah, I agree. So where I live in Encinitas, California, every kid's got a rad runner bicycle. Every mm -hmm. one of them. They're packs of 20, 30, they're everywhere, right? And they're kind of throttle and go electric bikes. You know, you can pedal them too, but man, I catch these kids off road. They're wheeling them. They're having a ball on them. They're just, it's like Honda Cubs in the sixties or early seventies mm -hmm. or whatever. And they're having a ball on them. They're not fast. I go, but man, if the motorcycle industry can't figure out how to capture these kids is I mean, I'm always shocked. I mean, you see two 13 year old girls helmets sitting on their head, unstrapped in the turn lane at a busy intersection. And I'm like, all these parents would go, I would never put my kid on a motorcycle. I go, but they're putting mm -hmm. them on these little, they're not fast. They're not going to lose control because they they're fast, but these kids are learning to ride street, you know, mm -hmm. you know, it's dangerous, whatever, but they're learning to ride bicycles you know, electric motorcycles, mm -hmm. basically on the street. 
And there's a huge opportunity for the power sports industry to capture the, get these kids onto motorcycles, you know? They love freedom. And in California, the gridlock and everything else, you know, motorcycles give you freedom. Everybody's trying to figure it out. And again, this is just, this is just motorsports industry talk right here, but everybody's trying to figure it out because, you know, obviously Indians got e-bikes, KTM group has e-bikes now. Intense is selling their uh, Taser electric mountain bike through Parts Unlimited. So it's at Power Sports dealers. Like from both sides, cycling's trying to figure out how to do Power Sports. Power Sports trying to figure out how to do uh, uh, bicycles. Basically just to create just to create customers from each other. And nobody's quite nailed it yet. Like they're they're close. They're getting there, but they're two very different spaces. So it's, it's interesting to watch. Well, so... Pedal assist e-mountain bikes, I think, are one of the best things ever made. Like the Taser, mm -hmm. the Intense, you know, my son's a mountain biker. Um, but the e-mountain bikes are amazing, you know, and they're still mm -hmm. a workout. I don't like the just throttle and go electric oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. motorcycle. But mm -hmm. like the pedal assist, Yamaha's got them. I've got a Yamaha Moro. Thing's amazing. Um, mm -hmm. But, and I think that's a really good thing because it's a it really is a bicycle. You have to pedal it to go. Um, mm -hmm. but again, I think just all these, these, like the rad, I mean, you look it up, you don't know what it is, but they're everywhere out here. Super 73s. I think that's who Indian yep. makes the Indians. And, you know, mm -hmm. I'll never forget the first time I saw it. I'm like, but that thing looks like a rub roadster. I saw it as a prototype <laughs> early COVID. I'm like, looks just like a rub roadster. You know, if you see what a rub roadster brings these days, there's six, seven, eight, ten grand. It's crazy. <laughs> and that look, they did a great job with that super 73 in the Indian and, um, but gosh, you know, we've got to get these kids on the motorcycles. Hundred mm percent. -hmm. Um, if they're on motorcycles, they'll be on snowmobiles. You know, it's like um, slippery slope. Anyway, it's a slippery slope. <laughs> you'll see another snowmobile for me someday. Oh, I love it. Love it. And again, I don't know if I'm go, if I'm game for a full blown deal again, but um, certainly excited to bring something to market that uh, I think is going to get some interest. So. Uh, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to that then for sure. Last one for you. What's kind of the legacy you want for the, for the revolt and for Redline? Like, what do you want people to think of when they think of, of that slide and that brand? Well, you know, I want to remember the good stuff, you know, and most of the people that still remember it, you know, I think your dad must've known what it was and talking to you tonight was fun. I think you said you're 28 or something, you know, mm -hmm. I tell you what, it's fun for me when, I have customers, solar customers, I'm a solar contractor now, um, that have heard of it. You know, I used mm -hmm. to love walking into motorcycle dealers and talk to somebody and they get talking and they're like, oh, you're from California. What are you looking at snowmobiles for? Because I'm just interested. And for me, it's just fun. Um, I'm stoked. There's a group of, you know, we've, we've located probably 40 of the 55 or, you know, our, a friend of mine, Matt, has. And, uh, you know. I just want people to remember it. You know, it, it's fun for me. Uh, no legacy, I guess, but I love the fact that there's one sitting at the Hall of Fame in Saint Germain. Mm -hmm. you know? That's that's pretty damn cool. And it's, I mean, at the very least, I mean, you're you're a passionate guy in, in power sports as a whole. So I'm sure, just even as you said, people still thinking of it to to this day and talking about it. That's probably solace enough in itself. It is. You know what? Uh, and like I say, so <laughs> you can cut this out if you want, but I had a, <laughs> I had an investor meeting with Tom Tiller once and, uh, oh, yeah. 
I think I told again, you can cut this out later if you want, but you want to hear it? Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. <laughs> so um, I'd written letters to Chris Toomey and Tom Tiller and nothing back from Polaris. And I don't remember why, but I, so uh, <laughs> anyway, so my investor group, they were downtown Minneapolis uh, investment brokers and they had got a meeting set up with Tom Tiller. I'm like, I don't really want to go. I go, I just don't think he gets it or I don't think he's interested. And uh, um, they're like, well, you have to go. It's not that easy. You know, market, you got to gum. You know, you, you need to be here. I'm like, all right. So I went. And it was right after Victory launched. And uh, Tom sat there and, you know, had his feet on the table. And he's like, you know, we know a little bit about marketing, marketing, building snowmobiles and building motorcycles and, you know, going into the motorcycle industry has been a really tough thing. And, you know, we know we do a little market research and, you know, he goes, we find that I think it's uh, less than 11 percent of people have ever even heard of a victory motorcycle. And I'm like, yeah, I don't doubt that. And, you know, because motorcycles, I'm thinking motorcycles are a lot of mm -hmm. brands and, and it's mm -hmm. spread around the world. Right. So if mm -hmm. you're talking all motorcycles. I go, yeah, I don't doubt that. And he goes, well, what percentage do you think have ever even heard of Redline snowmobiles? I go, well, I think probably 70, 80% have heard of Redline snowmobiles. <laughs> and he choked on his Coca-Cola, sat up, red in the face, and is like, that's bullshit. I bet you my market cap to your market cap is closer to seven. And I'm like, I just looked at my guys, and I'm like, hey, we should go. He doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. But... You know, at the same time, I walked into a holiday gas station and there was seven magazines on the rack that had Redline snowmobiles in them. And mm -hmm. I think of snowmobilers, because it's a small, passionate group, I think a large percentage had heard of us. You know, we were big news in the snowmobile industry. You know, Victory did not come on the scene and take the motorcycle industry by storm. It's a much mm -hmm. harder, much larger worldwide industry. You know, so I'm not even mm -hmm. knocking victory at all because I kind of like them. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, I think what we were doing in our market was the right time in the right place. We needed another $20 million. You know, that's just the fact. And another two years. You know, and there's there's something to be said about, you know, obviously you guys wanted it to, to last and things like that. But there's something to be said about leaving it as a, oh what they could have been rather than a oh they did it and then they fell flat or like they 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 produced all these sleds and they were actually just garbage or you know like there's something to be said of people just leaving it as a giant what if you know what you guys thank you for saying that because the sled wasn't i mean the sled wasn't finished that's that's mm -hmm. the real problem the concepts were good they weren't we didn't have it you know you can say we took forever and we did but um, it was a big undertaking and I'm proud, you know, I'm proud of nine, nine out of 10 things we did. You know, we got people excited. We had dealers that wanted to buy them customers, consumers to this day still, I mean, love it. And there's some people that hate it, you know, but, uh, mm -hmm. even our investors, you know, we, when we shut the thing down, we didn't have one investor lawsuit, not mm -hmm. one. I mean, that's kind of unheard of a company goes bankrupt out of business. Not one, none, most of them were just along for the ride. They enjoyed it. They, they were rooting for us, right? They, you know, they weren't there to make a ton of money on the stock. They were just rooting for us. And uh, so that all felt good. Um, 
yeah. Again, I don't think this letter is bad. It was just not finished. I mean, you guys had only a couple year run. I mean, there's there's OEMs to this day that there's sleds that are five years old that still aren't quite figured out. You guys basically built a sled from the ground up in like three years. Yeah. So there's <laughs> there's a lot there. Engines and everything, you know. Mm-hmm. So dealer network engines raise the money, you know. Anyway, it was it was a lot of fun. <laughs> I, I have no regrets. Awesome, awesome. Well, we can wrap it up uh, there for you, Kent. Again, I, I really appreciate the time. And like I kind of said in the intro, it's it's still an iconic sled, regardless of how it ended. So um, I knew there was going to be a cool story behind it. So I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Ken Harley on the Carbide Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. Kent is one of those guys you really want to grab a beer with and just listen to him talk. As I always say, I'm just here for the stories, and you know he's got a pile of them. Thanks again to Kent for the time and transparency in chatting about Redline. You can tell that despite it not working out how he had hoped, he's still extremely proud of everything that the brand accomplished, and I have a tremendous amount of respect for that. Thanks again to all of our loyal listeners. This episode was a far cry from the racing content that we usually put out, but the intrigue surrounding the story was too much to pass up on. Be sure to follow us on socials, check out the merch site, tell your friends, and as always, take care.